There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, producer Matt here. We're back with our first proper episode of the year. Thank you for staying subscribed in our absence. Uh, Ollie's away this week, but in his place we have the smooth, silky voice of Paul Robinson. But before we start, this episode is dedicated to Daniel in Berlin. He's a British listener living in Germany. He says, this podcast is great for me to keep up with the media news back home. Thank you for all your hard work in creating it. Well, thank you to you, Daniel, and also to uh, John Irwin, Mr. Casella, and DeBerg Autoprint for your donations. Uh, to join them, get our praise and guarantee your regular fix of media news is independent. And uh, this week there is one particular story we could only do in this level of detail because we're independent now. You'll know which one it is. Please, please, please head to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Okay, here's the show. Hello and welcome to The Media Podcast. I'm Paul Robinson. On today's show, BBC Three announces a raft of new shows, but after it disappears off television screens, will younger viewers go online to watch them? The Guardian searches for ways to reduce running costs. Could that mean journalists' jobs on the line? Plus, the winners and losers in the latest radio listening figures. And, as boardrooms are shuffled, we're playing musical chairs with broadcasting bigwigs. That's all coming up on this edition of The Media Podcast. This is The Media Podcast, recording as usual at the Hospital Club in Covent Garden. I'm Paul Robinson, sitting in for Ollie Mann, who is spending some time with his family. So all of us here at The Media Podcast send our love and look forward to welcoming him back to the presenter's chair very soon. In the meantime, it's a special one-off appearance only from me, because I couldn't do this on my own, so I've been joined by two doyens of the media world. That's Steve Ackerman, the managing director of content company Something Else. Hello, Paul. And journalist Maggie Brown. Welcome to you both. Hello. So, Steve, um, we're a month into 2016. Has January been busy for you? Very busy, actually. Surprisingly so, because sometimes it can be a little bit quiet, I think, traditionally. But um, it seems there's a lot of people who do have commissions and opportunities and want to spend money, and particularly in the online world, actually. In the online world? Yeah. Okay, more about that later, I'm sure. And Maggie, we haven't seen you since October, so what have you been doing the last six months, last four months? Well, I'm actually um, plotting uh, volume two of my history of Channel 4, at least I'm putting together some sort of uh, spec for it, which, um, you know, is taking a little bit of time, and I don't know if it will float, but um, here's hoping. A very good time 
I would say, to uh, have a, a, another look at the fate of Channel 4. Well, Channel 4's future is obviously very much part of the current story, so that's uh, very timely indeed. Well, welcome, both of you. And we start this week with the Rajars, the radio industry's quarterly measure of listenership. These latest figures cover October to December 2015 and are always eagerly awaited by broadcasters, not least, of course, commercial stations, which can set advertising rates based on these numbers. Uh, well, I'm a radio person too, of course, but I won't ask myself about the figures. I'm going to ask Steve. Steve, what have you picked out from these figures? Well, I think a couple of things really jump out. One is Six Music becoming the biggest uh, digital you know, DAB station. And it, it just continues to be a success story, really. And I think it continues to be a real highlight in terms of risk-taking and innovation. You know, some of the shows they do are, are genuine things you cannot hear elsewhere. And the bravery of the playlist continues to be rewarded. So that's, that's very interesting. Obviously, lots of the newspapers were very keen to pick up on the Chris Moyles story. The headline uh, or the spin was that these were the highest figures on Breakfast for XFM for I think something like 10 years. I think when you dig underneath that a little bit, it's maybe not quite as dramatic as that. It's great that his figures are up, but he's, he's still only hitting about 300,000 people. Now, let's be fair, it's very early in the evolution of this show and uh, he's a he's a broadcaster who obviously over time I'm sure will deliver audiences for XFM but I can't help but feel maybe the one thing that that's difficult for him is he just isn't going to have the publicity machine behind him that he did at Radio 1 where almost everything he said and did could create and generate headlines which obviously could help deliver more audience to the to the show but global did spend a lot of money on tv advertising for him they spent a lot of money and, and you, you know if you haven't seen it there's there's uh, there's the uh, the spoof uh, ad that's that's running that actually I, I saw in my cinema when i went a couple of weeks ago so a lot of money being spent on marketing unusually for a commercial station which is which is great to see actually but it's clearly going to take time and i, I suppose Maybe more interesting is underneath Moles is the fact that lots of the London breakfast shows did do pretty well and their, fig- their figures were up. So commercial radio sort of gnawing away a little bit and, and getting bits and pieces. But um, yeah, that, that Moles story, I think, doesn't quite have the traction that maybe the headline suggested. So Maggie, I remember when I was at the BBC in 1993 when the late, great Terry Wogan went back on breakfast on Radio 2 for the first time with Wake Up for Wogan. It took about nine months until his audience figures moved. So do you think there's more in the Chris Moyles audi- uh, radio audience bucket for I do because I mean I'm not really a natural Chris Moyles fan obviously but A he is very good at his own self-publicity he's not slow at coming forward so there will be more generated by him and we can be sure of that really there will be created events Um, also he is a very seasoned professional and four years ago I thought when he left the the breakfast slot on Radio 1 that he would be accommodated somewhere else within the BBC he doesn't really translate into television that's one of his problems. He isn't as ambidextrous as you might say um, say any of the others are, which Terry Wogan, obviously, supremely so, and Chris Evans as well. So I think that there probably will be a bit more. And I, I mean, look, he's part of a huge company now, the Global. Uh, they, can, they can spend their way into, uh, I would have thought, a bigger share. But when you look at what, what struck me, actually, about the, the, the Rajars, were you've got Capital Magic, Kiss Heart, all very close together, really. I mean, it's a fiercely competitive market with... I mean, they're not exactly, you know, huge gorillas, but they're all fighting for, uh, uh, you know, a, a very 
in, in, in many ways affluent, interesting, uh, busy audience, people out and about spending. So uh, everything to play for, I would say. You make a good point. Capital now back on top at number one, but it does have ebbs and flows. I mean, the big question, I guess, is where is Chris Moyle's audience going to come from? If he's going to add more, who's going to lose out? Where are they going to come from, these new listeners? Well, I think the interesting thing about Chris Moyle's is... You know, people often sort of look at the sort of crassness and forget that he is a fantastic broadcaster and he's a he's a radio anorak. He's grown up with this craft. I mean, he knows radio inside out. And so he's I, I think he's got two two elements to him in terms of where that audience might come from. Clearly, part of that ex, or Radio X are now hoping is going to be from a musical perspective in, in that people come across the door. Maybe six music is a bit too edgy for them, but. Obviously, Radio X is a bit more challenging than your traditional pop station. And then there's Moyles himself as an entertainer. And that's, I think, often what happened to him on Radio 1, that he was attracting much older audiences because he was genuinely really entertaining to and listen he to. he can have a real good rant. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean look, when, when he's answers. on form, he's fantastic. Yeah. And, Paul, you, you'll, you'll know, good breakfast show hosts do need time to bed in, you know, do need time to get used to the format and, and get their pacing right. But I think you'd be pretty brave to bet against him in terms of delivering some, some, sort, of, some sort of results. And I think some of that audience will come from people who are looking for an entertaining listen and that will mean that it probably chips away at a little bit of some of the commercial stations but do you think LBC do you think it would chip at LBC well oh, I don't really? know I mean I mean Ferrari's fan, fan, fantastic yeah. but 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 certainly Radio 1's got to feel a little bit vulnerable at the top end of its audience because I don't think it's a very good show and, um, and this is Nick Grimshaw yeah and you know Radio 2 does have a does have a great show but, but equally there's always going to be a little bit of promiscuity amongst the audience I mean Radio 1 have had a reasonable radio and Nick Grimshaw's gone up very very um, small amount but you might argue, given his X Factor profile, he should have gone up much more, Maggie. I mean, is, is Nick Grimshaw, you know, where he's going to get? Is that his peak, do you think? Probably, but you have to remember that a losing audience isn't such a terrible thing for Radio 1 if, if you're losing the right sort of audience, i.e. the older end of... And, and, and let's just face it, you know, it's very hard to judge Radio 1 in terms of uh, any of the other stations because it has this very... A tight um, demographic mission. The other thing that strikes me, though, about these radars is, uh, of course, Radio 4 remains the most popular uh, of the speech networks in, in London and has had a really, really good well, it's time. It's the number one station in London overall. Uh, uh, exactly. But also, it, when you think of that quarter, it was full of really big news stories and big events. I mean, we have had, um, I mean... It's been quite horrible news in a way, but there's always something to make you turn the radio on, in, in my opinion, or, or at least that's what happens to me. I, I, you can't help but feel engaged, and great sporting news as well. So I think that when you look at figures, and people, I, I, I don't actually like these quarterly radios. I think I've probably had a little rant about it myself in the past. That in a way, it's very. It, you have to look long term at what's really going on, and we all know that these diaries and whatever are kind of, you know, that they, they can be. A, a little bit less than accurate but fundamentally what's what's going on is that we're, we're living in a, in a huge period of, of news and change and that that ought to be all to radio's advantage on the music front as well you know when you look at the stars who are sadly passing it does at least get radio written about and talked Absolutely. about at least four times a year we should mention six music because again it's a great success as steve was mentioning and steve the mac who's got over a million listeners for the first time 1.08 million listeners mm. for a digital stage that's really quite an amazing achievement, I think. It's an amazing achievement, mm. especially when you think how long he's been going and, and, and there's been a, a slight reinvention going on there. And I think the I think the richness of Six Music is you can point to so many bits of their schedule and, and see really good performances going on uh, on individual shows as well as looking at programmes that are just a great listen. 
And, and also, Melly, great surprise in the music. I mean, you turn on Six Music and you hear things you would never maybe expect yes. to hear. Yes, it's true. And also, I, I mean, I'm a great fan of Lauren Laverne as well. So this is a station that has really just grown almost outside of anybody's expectations. She's and also got very good numbers. 873,000 listeners yeah, now to Lauren it's Laverne. It's really, really good. There's a, there's a real confidence that you hear on air. And interestingly, when you when you meet some of the team behind the scenes, you, you, you see it in them now in a way that you didn't do a few a few years ago you know they're, they're led by Paul Rogers and I think he's doing a fan, fantastic job a genuine confidence and you, and you can hear it you can hear it coming out the speakers and overall pretty good for commercial radio I think lots of commercial radio groups have increased their audiences Bauer, Global um, Free Radio in the Midlands commercial radio looking like it's uh, no longer actually um, declining but actually may now be picking up audience and, and building and growing Steve well crucially I suppose we've got two significant groups that are very professional in their in their uh, approach and you know all of us want to see a commercial radio sector that does really really well and that can really push the BBC it's better for the BBC but it's also obviously really crucial commercial radio can can thrive and 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 personally I you know I'm, I'm quite pleased to see uh, a global continuing its its policies and obviously they've just announced um, hearts extra they're going to roll out and obviously last quarter was um, was radio X starting to come into its own so I think those are all positive signs for commercial radio now talking of listening Listeners, thank you to everybody who's already taken out a voluntary subscription that allows us to continue to produce the media podcast for you every fortnight. And if you haven't sponsored us already, please do take a look at themediapodcast.com. That's themediapodcast.com and support us by taking out a sub or donating a lump sum. And in return, a future episode will be dedicated in your name. All the details are at themediapodcast.com and a big thank you in advance. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, it's been a busy few weeks in the world of broadcasting and the press, so let's bring you up to speed. We start with the relaunch of BBC Three. 
The channel will lose its broadcast slots on Freeview, Sky, Virgin and others on the 16th of February to be replaced by content which is made available on the BBC iPlayer before eventually getting a late night airing on BBC One or BBC Two. At the glitzy launch party this month, controller Damien Kavanagh claimed the BBC is the first broadcaster in the world to move a channel from TV to online. So, Maggie, you've got your ear to the ground. Is this launch a uh, wake or a celebration? Well, it's both, really, isn't it? It's clearly a wake because it's coming off of uh, a linear television and uh, it's still very alive and kicking, uh, despite the fact that clearly there is a, a, a very big shift, certainly amongst younger people. Uh, it's to do with, with money. That's the basic uh, problem. I think that if uh, the BBC was secure in uh, its licence fee funding, then this would not be happening. I always thought it was a bit of a strange channel, though, in the sense that the fact it, it doesn't really start broadcasting till 7 o'clock is, is just bizarre. And it does kind of belong to a kind of almost digital dinosaur age, you could say. Uh, because clearly... Uh, if it really is going to tightly focus on 16 to 34-year-olds, um, they, 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 they're not going to wait till 7 o'clock to, to necessarily um, be attracted to the channel. Some of the things about this are quite sensible. I, I like the thought that, for example... Some of the new commissions that they're bringing to the fore are short-form commissions, very geared to people watching and listening on tablets or on on smartphones or whatever, on-the-move broadcasting. And I was only this week interviewing the director of War and Peace, and something really struck me when I've been asking him, this is for Sunday's Observer now, how he came at 35 to be doing this amazing piece of work he, he directed all six episodes it's a huge it's a year-long project and he's done it as we all know with a plum. and one of the training grounds he had was the, the the three minute wonders that used to be on channel four between the news and eight o'clock and this suddenly sort of dovetailed with what in my mind anyway what channel what bbc3 rather is is trying to do because there are as you go through and unpick the plans now i know they're all put forward in a great pr uh, event but there is a lot of shorter form stuff that will open up doors to new talent new talent in the same age group of the people that they are hoping to attract and that's really important because you don't want BBC Three to be run by old suits. You want the new cool kids running it, and you want new talent in. So from that point of view, I've slightly changed my position on BBC Three, and thought that actually some of these developments may enrich, genuinely enrich, television and broadcasting culture because there will be new people who are going to emerge from this, who are not just having to play around with uh, sort of children's TV type budgets, but are sort of maybe making programming that can be developed and some of it too will be screened remember certainly for the the original uh, content on bbc2 and bbc1 at, at other points in in their schedules damon has said the shackles are off now when it comes to creativity um what about the risk though that without a schedule program durations aren't managed and maybe things go on longer than they should because there's no longer the constraints of a schedule slot well you see that that's exactly what happened if you look at some of the commissions that um amazon is doing i mean the man in the high castle the the, the dramatization which frank spotnitz uh, has just directed 
and produce those. Some of those episodes are of different times. You're not, you are not so constrained in the digital That's world. That's a good thing. And well, I mean, yes, it, it is. And there, there are occasions in television. I mean, the last episode of War and Peace on Sunday is longer because they needed more time in order to fit in all that has to happen. You know, the Battle of Borodino, etc., etc. And I mean, you could really call it Death and Peace because that's the theme. So there, there are cases where programmes are, are allowed to uh, fill the time they need in order to achieve what they have to achieve. So I don't find that so necessarily bad. In fact, it, it is a problem for schedules. And what it means is that when they come to be fitted into BBC One or BBC Two, they'll probably be tucked away somewhere. I'm Look, I'm not saying this is the world's best decision, but I am saying that out of... Uh, if you like a marriage of convenience with with uh, the online world, that some very good things may come out of it. Okay, Steve, where does this leave younger viewers though without broadband? I mean, first of all, I've got to say I, I'm absolutely in the camp that this is the right thing to do, and we, we all know it's well documented. It came out of a money decision, and sometimes for a big organisation, it can be difficult to take a risk-taking decision. But but when you look at young audiences and the way they behave, this is absolutely the right thing. And when we, you know, your question point in terms of. Uh, those who don't have broadband, you know, the truth is the vast majority of the population does now have broadband. And for those who don't, it's coming. And the BBC does need to start thinking about this audience because you can see anybody who has a teenage child can see the media behaviour of that audience. And it is not about sitting down on the sofa having a, a loyalty to a, to a channel. It's about searching out the content that most appeals to you normally through, through another screen through a laptop or a, or a mobile or a tablet. And so I think in that sense, it will serve these audiences. And also, it's not just about the minutage going up, it's also about minutage going down in the sense of a lot of content. You, you know, a schedule ties you to 30-minute minimum blocks. And for, I think, this audience, a lot of content needs to be delivered in much shorter-form content. And the challenge for the BBC is in this space, it's already catching up with with other online players who are way ahead of them in terms of trying to reach these audiences. What about the timing of this, Maggie? This is happening before charter renewal, and we've just discovered that uh, Charlotte Moore is now going to be in charge of BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Four, and the iPlayer commissioning, so no controllers of BBC Two and Four, but there is a controller of BBC Three. Is this not rather odd? Yes, I I think it is odd, and uh, I I noticed this straight away. They will probably say that, um, well, you know, basically the other channels are having editors, so they've been... uh, demoted what I what is worrying about this decision of, of making Charlotte Moore the supremo in, in in television commissioning is that it's a huge waterfront to cover now this does actually occur at Channel 4 because Jay Hunt is also the director of content and of course she can spread her programming and her patronage you might say certainly her picks over Channel 4, More 4 and, and E4 plus all the other bits and pieces they do but B- the BBC has a much bigger programme budget and it's also in a way even more sharply kind of delineating where things are going to go one of the great strengths of say BBC drama has been they have had a, a very excellent departed controller Ben Stevenson but other ideas have come up through other parts of the UK. There were a number of points you could go in which to sort of put your case and see if you get a sympathetic ear. The worry is that if you centralise things, uh, you won't get that kind of, you know, diverse uh, sense of of, of judgement and and picking of of ideas. It's a lot of power to put in somebody's hands. But it also, of course, depends on 
what happens below that structure because what we were in the middle of um, I was surprised the decision was made so quickly that what we're in the middle of is a BBC A trying to cut costs desperately and secondly also trying to figure out how to handle uh, if you like a continuation of channels but an increase in the amount of uh, programming that can be accessed by uh, out of schedules online but not within a, a linear schedule so that they're, they're still struggling to work out how to spend their budget properly and where does this leave the director of television role danny cohen left last year uh, in a way charlotte moore's role looks a bit now like the director of tv role doesn't it yes i've just actually been profiling mark Lindsay uh, for uh, the royal television society for television magazine and of course he's only acting director of television and i, I think he wouldn't know himself particularly but what you also have to remember is that the BBC also has a big entertainment commitment and still wishes to keep that. I mean, you could say at the moment, uh, if you look at the BBC schedule, you know it's charter renewal year, don't you? I mean, let's face it, I mean, look at look at what is being thrown on screen and, and the Sunday night schedules, for example, and, and who that is appealing to. And I can tell you, uh, in, in two weeks' time, there's an absolutely wonderful, I mean, really wonderful adaptation of um, John le Carre's The Night Manager. It's cast to the nines, you know. Tom Hiddleston, Hugh Laurie, Tom Hollander. This is Charter in your material. Olivia Colman. And it's magnificent. And it's it's cost $30 million. Now, the BBC's only put up one third of that. But nonetheless, it's a really, really good drama. Now... When you think about it, you've got this sort of sense at the moment that that uh, you cannot not keep your audience happy, and that includes entertainment. Now, Mark Lindsay is in his 50s. He has produced so many entertainment shows. He's kept Strictly Come Dancing on its tippy toes. It's not in the, uh, you know, Britain's Got Talent or, no, well, you know, it's, it's well, Britain's Got Talent is okay, but it's not in the X Factor. Uh, or bracket, even the voice. Yeah, or even the voice. No, it's done. So therefore, Lindsay is this sort of solid figure who kind of knows what to do with talent and all the rest of it. Whether he survives this restructure, I have no idea. But it would be strange, wouldn't it, not to have some older uh, and wise and experienced people, especially when you're having to do things like find a way of relaunching Top Gear as well. And sticking with online streaming for a moment, lots of talk this week about three technology giants, Apple, Amazon and Google, wanting to get their hands on the rights to stream American football games. Steve, does this surprise you? I'm not, uh, well, I'm surprised they're the only ones bidding, but I'm not surprised when you look at the names that you see because obviously when you're talking about sports rights and and really I suppose the NFL um, alongside probably the NBA and and obviously our Premier League are the three, you know, crown jewel leagues in the world that, that go for huge amounts. The figures can't keep going up unless new entrants are coming in. And when you look around, you, it's very difficult in the broadcast landscape to see who, who are the new entrants whose pockets are deep enough. And, you know, frankly, what are these guys trying to do, Amazon, Apple? They're trying to do exactly the same play that Rupert Murdoch did with Sky 25 years ago, which, which is to say, I want to own the thing that people really will, will, will bring me audience. And for Murdoch 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that was the football and it was movies, because in those days, movies were, were a sort of rare resource. These days, it's harder to see what those things are, apart from those sporting events. And therefore, when you think about that logic, I think it's really interesting to see them coming into the space and being linked with these rights. But when you really think about it, it's not that surprising. 
And do you think there are any other examples? I mean, NFL is a good one because there's such an international following for it. But is it a one-off or are there other examples where they might also bid? Well, as I said, I think I think it's the other the other sporting contest and, and the Premier League, you know, the round, the new deal comes into play next season and then it's always only... 18 months, two years after that, they start to they start the renegotiation process again. And I think I'm I think I'm right in saying that the international side for the Premier League rights is now worth three billion. So huge amounts of money. I mean, five billion for UK, but three billion for for, for, for international. Very difficult to see next time round that some of these players, Amazon, Apple, and others, aren't going to be interested in whether they can get the online rights for the footy. Well, we'll talk more about sport later in the Olympics, but let's now move to the print industry and to the Guardian, where parent company Guardian News and Media is looking to make savings of fifty million pounds in order to cut its running costs by twenty percent. Maggie, does this mean that journalists' jobs are on the line? Well, first of all, let me just say, I think it's the most awful news and it's, it's causing a huge shock. One of the reasons it's causing a huge shock is that it had appeared that the strategy since 2011, in fact, had been to carefully prune costs, but to ensure that the losses were reduced, to build up this big cushion of, um, of, of cash or investments, which indeed has happened, and that the expansion in America and then Australia was going to be very carefully done this time to ensure that it really did contribute while all the time of course this being an open journalism which you didn't have to pay for. Now I know this because in 2011 when Andrew Miller the 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 person who ran the Guardian until six or eight months ago I was invited to his office and he briefed me and then he then has done many briefings over the intervening years about the the direction of travel. Everybody thought they understood this. There was even a point where there were redundancies amongst uh, the journalists, about a hundred or so, but they were negotiated and there was no strike, because there is a no strike and no enforced redundancy rule at the the Guardian that's always run itself in a a very sort of civilised way. The scale of these losses compared with about 20 million a year ago, well, we'll know the full figures when they come out and watch, just uh, has taken most people's breath away. Uh, And it's been increased by the fact that the uh, investment fund has also lost money. Well, one can understand that. But it does look as if there's been an extremely large amount of cash going out. And also, when you look at the figures... I, I may or may not be right, but, but my understanding is that costs, operating costs have gone up, say, about 23% in five years, and the actual income coming in has been only up by about 10%, so this is a terrible recipe. Now, something about the way The Guardian is running itself uh, seems to me to be just a bit rash, and it could be, the answer is, of course, that if you're reducing the amount of paid sales from a print newspaper that you get, you're making yourself ever more dependent on revenue from advertising, which includes digital advertising. Uh, if that is not either growing as fast as you hope, which it hasn't, or it hits a glitch, then you are, if you like, doubly vulnerable. And if you're still recruiting, which appears to have been the case, adding to your numbers, I mean, I one figure is... 
479 people added over three years. So they're up to, these aren't necessarily your journalists, you know, they're the operational people and everything. You you end up with a very, uh, what appears to be, an organisation whose costs are out of kilter with the market they're in. So uh, the, you asked me the original question, will journalists lose their jobs? Well, it, it seems quite likely, doesn't it? Because you, the, you can't make such big cuts, 20% cuts, 50 million pounds, okay, over uh, phased in. But these are, these are quite stark figures and people really have, I mean, people are really shocked. By what this. will be the impact on the Guardian and the Observer newspapers? I don't know. I mean, the Observer that I'm writing for this week is very, very lightly um, staffed. I know, obviously, that they're going to have to uh, conserve cash. I mean, that's the first thing you will do. They've, for, for example, put on ice a project they should never have probably gone into, which is to uh, create this arena in the Midland um, goods shed, which is part of the King's Cross um, development. There's also, I don't know if this is true or not, that they're going to have to look at everything, including maybe the cost of their current offices, which are extremely nice. Well, there's, been, there's been a very big investment, hasn't there, as well, on the, um, on the branded content, yes. sort of stroke native advertising side with the whole Guardian Labs set up. A lot of expensive people yeah. coming in there because they're coming out of advertising agencies yeah. and, and, and marketing places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's been, I think, very um, integral to the strategy to yeah. try and reach new yeah. revenues. But yeah. obviously, when you're looking at cuts, it can be really difficult to decide, do you stay stay the course with something you, you think might produce revenues going forward but may not yet be returning? Well, this is it looks worry. as though... They've it created as... three divisions, you see. So there's three divisions looking at different things. You know, the audiences, the branded content and uh, the newspapers. So you've got three bits all working apparently in tandem but what what would seem to be the case is that they perhaps are not necessarily all working towards the same financial constraints i i the other thing about the guardian which is this is what's really my in my heart this is what's really worrying me it is that you know it, it has a structure which is has defended the newspapers wonderfully well through the scott trust which is one body which the former editor uh, Anne Rusbridge are chairs now and uh, it has obviously a, a company side which is the company that, that runs the the Guardian and Observer and other bits so uh, quite where decisions are made and how they're made I, I, don't, I don't fully understand but it, it seems to me that perhaps both sides aren't some, something's gone wrong I would have thought sure, in the communication surely, surely the challenge for the Guardian like all the other newspapers is if you were starting this now you wouldn't structure something like that the way it's structured because you'd say here's a brand that has to be developed across every every platform and the quality of its filmed or audio content has to be as strong as its as its writing content and you think about the investment and how you develop that brand to challenge say a radio 4 brand or an economist or mm. or or some, mm. some of those and it, and it's it strikes me as, very much as a newspaper outsider that the challenge for the telegraph and the guardian and and many of the other papers is pretty much the same where you've got a big print entity and you're trying to bolt on things around the edges that you think are relevant now but still everything's there to sort of hold up the print entity and and I'm not sure going forward you know the numbers don't lie readership is going down year after year after year so you yes, have they to do something paper, about restructuring they've that. They've made the paper terribly expensive to buy. They've made the content free. Now, one option, yes, would be that you stop uh, doing a paper edition, a physical edition, and you move completely to an online uh, 
uh, version. Except one of the problems they've cited here is that digital revenues have not that's, risen that's as fast the as they prob- forecast. That's my whole point of the, yeah. the revenues not coming in. But to the match digital the revenues investment. not coming in, which no. is really worrying things. That must be the future. Well, uh, this is look. I, that's I, you know when people say that's above my pay grade. I mean, I haven't got the, f- the full figures in front of me, but clearly uh, you can tell from the reaction that something very serious is going on. And and the the Guardian, I don't know again if the UK Press Gazette was right, but its editor claimed to know that the Times and Sunday Times behind their paywalls were actually profitable. So the the question perhaps now for The Guardian is can it retrofit its model to maybe have more paid content on top of the branded content? And, you know, you mentioned organisations like The Economist and indeed the FT as well, you could say. But, I mean, The Economist does manage to do both. It manages to straddle both worlds really, really well. But The Economist has been really, really smart in terms of Mm how it's developed itself as a multi-platform property. And by that, I don't mm. just mean a written property. I do mean the other forms of media that it creates. Mm. So maybe some lessons for The Guardian elsewhere. We'll leave it there. I'm sure we'll return to the uh, subject again. But let's now go back to TV and uh, a rise in news has ceased broadcasting. The English language news channel was broadcast from London and aimed at the African audiences. Um, How much the channel owes to creditors isn't quite known, but estimates put its debts at between one and three million pounds. Maggie, amongst those are um, freelance journalists and other staff based in London. So did anybody see this coming? Uh, well, no, I certainly didn't. And neither obviously did Reuters, who is another one of the creditors, and um, a couple of TV uh, companies supplying staff and, and talent and content to them. I, d- I don't know much about, about this channel, I'm afraid. I might as well be honest about it. But I feel very sorry for everybody who is owed what appears to be a million pounds or and so. And the union is getting involved, Steve, and it looks like there's court action pending. Well, it clearly, I mean, as Maggie said, clearly a mismanaged business because it sounds like even Sky were caught out and they're pretty savvy, so they, they were sort of pulling the plug at the last minute, weren't they? OK, let's turn to uh, sport then. And the Olympic Games are to remain on the BBC until 2024 at the earliest after the corporation struck a deal with Discovery, the US owner of Eurosport, who snapped up the pan-European rights to summer and winter games until 2024 in a deal with the International Olympic Committee last June. The deal's worth just under £1 billion. Steve, this looks like a win for BBC Sports to time when the corporation is losing rights to other sport like F1 to Channel 4, for example. Re- really crucial for, for the BBC. And, and I, I mean, I, you know, I think the interesting thing about the Olympics is it's really the, the, the Glastonbury of sport in terms of there's only a, a small number of broadcasters who could really dive deep in the way the BBC can through the amount of platforms it's got. And I know as part of this story, Discovery had looked at that. Could they partly do some of this coverage through their free-to-air channels? And, and I know that ITV had also been keen to um, bid. But when you look at the way the BBC... Uh, covered the Olympics last time around and obviously it was a home Olympics so maybe it's that's not necessarily the, the sort of average example but even so the ability they've got to obviously provide online coverage to provide red button coverage uh, plays very well to their strengths and actually I, I don't think it's the big disaster that some people make out that some of the sports rights go go elsewhere for the BBC it is for, for some key crown jewels but but that is the world we're in now but for the Olympics I think that's really important that the BBC were were able to get it and that they've got this long-term deal so they can really plan ahead so with this deal Maggie they will have enough to fill two TV channels but not the same sort of depth as before so how is it going to work between the BBC coverage and the coverage on Eurosport? Well, I, I imagine that all of the events which, or, or the contests which are most relevant to the UK will be the ones that the BBC is going to surely 
focus on. The thing about Eurosport is that surely Discovery, they've obviously done a very uh, closely negotiated deal. So they want, they're want they incredibly commercial. I mean, David Zaslav is absolutely a ferocious uh, man, but he, they've also used, I think, Dominic Coles, who used to work at the BBC. So they've obviously been able to find a way of parceling the, these things up to everybody's advantage. And if a lot of the other stuff is on Eurosport, for example, as well as Discovery, I don't know what they're going to do, then discerning viewers who are really mad about certain sports will be able to find it in, a, in okay, a more commercial environment. But I don't think it's the end of the world at all. And I, I, this is clearly the way the world is going, which is in, in all big, high-glossy events, there's going to be shared rights, it seems to me. Well, I, well, I think as well, we, we, you know, we've got to... Uh, a bit like the BBC3 debate or the, or the Charlotte Moore debate, we've got to stop thinking necessarily in sort of channel terms uh, they may get enough content to fill two channels but it's a question whether you obviously put all that content on channels I mean I don't know whether the rights will extend to allow them to do red button or or iPlayer content or you know through through their websites the way they have done previously but that's surely the way they've got to start thinking it's about moving audiences from one platform to another depending on what they're doing and where they are in terms of their their time of day and their audience behavior does it matter for the BBC that they've had to do a deal with discovery rather than doing a deal directly with the Olympic uh, organizations surely the key question to ask is does it matter to the viewer or listener and as long as they can still access it probably not the BBC's radio rights are non-exclusive so who might step in to compete there do you think well, TalkSport has obviously got to be uh, v- very high on that agenda, one, one would think. Uh, doesn't seem to be many other players there, unless, of course, you, something left field happens. I mean, uh, a few years ago, we did have absolute going for football rights, and um, it was certainly wonderful to see someone like LBC starting to think, how, how do they branch out from, from their core speech offering to, to sort of you know, target new audiences? And for Eurosport, Maggie, is this going to produce a surge in uh, viewership to Eurosport? I mean, Eurosport now and Discovery are really being invested in. They're always a bit of a second-rate channel. They're now really shooting up to Premier League, aren't they? Well, I've always thought Eurosport was a greatly undervalued asset. And, um, I mean, you'll know as well as I do that it was the home of a great many of the sort of European broadcasting union rights. In a world where sport really is, is the new rock and roll, live sport is incredibly valuable I, I mean I'm turning on to Eurosport more than I ever used to in my life so I think I'm not I'm sure I'm just one small little cog in, in, in audiences voting and it's got a very good position on the um, programme uh, guide as well. On the so, EPG, yeah. On the EPG yes so I mean a lot of prominence so yes I mean good old discovery I'm not, I'm not anti-discovery in, in any sense of the word this is the new reality the real key thing is though that the BBC keeps its integrity as a British broadcasting corporation and that when it comes to international events like a huge ones like the Olympics which of course won't be in London they have to ensure that their coverage is all geared to what do people at home paying their licence fee really want to see and who do they want as their experts telling them about the event that's what really matters so let's test your knowledge then before we get to the quiz properly a couple of bonus questions here so uh, see you can get the answer no prizes but just the sheer credibility and I only compete sheer for prizes fun. Paul I don't, <laughs> oh, okay well, alright no prizes so tell me which cities are hosting the games then will be shared by the BBC and Eurosport in 2016 Rio. Rio, Rio, correct. Yeah. Yes, okay, one each. Okay. Uh, 2018, the Winter Olympics. Oh. I'll give you no, a clue. It's not it's 18 that it's in China. It is an Asian oh. country. No, no I don't It's know. not China. I don't know. Pyeongchang in South Korea. Uh, 2020. Where are the 2020 Olympics? Also in Asia. 
go quite close Japan. to... Yeah, Japan is correct. Uh, 2022 Winter Olympics. Is that the one in Beijing? Beijing is yeah. correct. And uh, 2024... Can you name any of the cities competing for the Olympics in 2024? And uh, you've got uh, US and Europe. Four cities. Berlin? Not Berlin, Maggie. <laughs> Worth a guess. Competing right. for the 2024 Olympics. Madrid? Not Madrid. You've got one more guess, Steve, and then one more guess from Rome? Maggie. I'll tell Rome? you. No, Steve? Boston. No, wrong. Rome, <laughs> Paris, Budapest or Los Angeles. And they'll be announced in September next year. So uh, a few points there, but I'm, I've lost count. So let's move on to the so media on, podcast quiz. We're also switched on. And so it is, we turn inevitably to the delights of the media podcast quiz. There have been a few boardrooms reshuffled recently, so we're playing musical chairs with the broadcasting bigwigs. The loser sits on the floor, the winner sits on the throne. So question one, who's stepping down Tun. Peter, Peter Fincham? Oh yes, Peter Fincham, because Well he's he's resigned. From ITV. And who's taking over? Kevin Liger, Kevin Liger. who's always been there. So yeah. it's a sort of ch- all change. I think that's one each then for okay. Peter Fincham for the first question. So question two um, who has channel hopped away from the BBC? Oh um, Kim Schillinglaw. Yes, from BBC Control Two. BBC Two, yes. Point to Maggie. And is this a loss to the BBC? Certainly. Good good talent, good executive loss? Well, I mean, for example, you know, look at the stellar way in which she's brought people like Brian Cox through. And as a bonus, who's been promoted to take charge? The BBC well, One, Charlotte Two, Moore. Four. Charlotte Moore is Who is correct. the controller of BBC so One? So we'll give you a half point for that, Maggie, because mm, it's quite okay. an easy bonus question. So she was so very quick off the mark. I've got to say, the words were hardly out, out of your mouth. Paul. Maggie, Maggie's <laughs> holiday's done her a great deal of good. She's so sharp, <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, so question three, then. Which son has returned to the fold? Murdoch. James, James Murdoch. And the story is? Becoming uh, chairman of Sky. And what do you think it all means? What's the implication for Sky? It means, uh, I think it means that another bid is imminent uh, from um, from Fox to buy Sky. So you think Fox will try and get full control of Sky, Maggie? In due time. I mean, depends on the share price and depends on a number of things. But um, clearly there's unfinished business and it is whether we like it or not, a very successful company. It's at a bit of a crossroads because of the cord cutting that may or may not fit it. hit it. Um, I, I can see why the Murdoch family would most certainly feel they need to come back. And will it go through this time or will it get blocked again? Look, I don't know. What I do you think? Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Steve? I, I think they need to do it whilst there's a Conservative government there, which probably means they've got plenty of time to... Uh, to get their ducks yes, indeed. In a row. I mean, they, 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 they were clearly relieved. I mean, in the broadcasting world, it's very interesting because both the BBC and Channel 4, you could say, were uh, wrong footed, maybe dismayed by the fact that there was a Conservative win uh, last year. But you can imagine that in another part of broadcasting, it was very, very cheerily greeted. All right. So you two are forecasting, and sometime before 2020, Sky will be wholly owned by uh, Murdoch in some form or another. We'll no, I'm not saying, I, I'm, I am not forecasting or because I, to cause, cause strange things happen. Well, I'm, and I'm thinking about two conservative terms. <laughs> I'm just trying to pin you two down. And you're just so slippery. All right. Thank you. I reckon that's two, two and a half. So Maggie, with a bonus of a half, is just about the winner for this week. This is a historic moment. I've never won before. We'll celebrate and uh, celebrate with another cup of coffee, maybe. Have another ginger beer. Another ginger beer. Uh, That's it for today. My thanks to Maggie Brown and to Steve Ackerman. You can find all our previous instalments and get the new ones downloaded automatically straight to your phone. Just head to the media podcast 
mediapodcast.com. And don't forget to support the next episode of the Media Podcast. Please go to mediapodcast.com slash dedicate. I've been Paul Robinson. The producer was Peter Price. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.